0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome back to New Books in Indian Religions. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More about me at rajbalkaran.com. More importantly, today I get to speak with Dr. Gloria Maite Hernandez. She's associate professor of Spanish at Westchester University. We are talking about her brand new 2021 OUP publication, Savoring God Comparative Theopoetics. Gloria, welcome to the
0: podcast. Thank you, Raj, and many thanks for inviting me. It's an honor to be here.
1: My pleasure.
0: So let's start
1: perhaps with your subtitle,
0: Theopoetics. What is that? <laughs> I thought you were going to begin by the title, not the subtitle.
1: <laughs> well, sometimes I switch it up a little bit. So Theopoetics, what is that?
0: It's fun. Well, the concept of Theopoetics itself uh, was not created by me. It's not original. It was an idea in the, in the mid-20th century. Uh, I actually explained that in the introduction of the book. Uh, the theolo- theologians started discussing what's going to be of theology after the so-called death of God that Nietzsche declared. And then uh, it was a very strong movement, uh, particularly in the United States, but also in Europe, where they just declared that the... The, the, uh, the theology would only be able to subside if it, if it go if it went into the realm of poetry of poetics. so it's a way of accepting from a theological perspective the sort of a creativity creative power of God, the creativity of God and the and the power of God to transform itself into men's way, let's say in a way. But also from the literary perspective, which is uh, from where I look at it more, is a way of emphasizing poetry's power to evoke that which is not meant to be uh, put into language. So we always talk about God being ineffable and so on, and God is Cannot be put into language, cannot be expressed with words, and that's the essence of mystical writing, which are the the works that I work with. But a, but the theo poets say, okay, God cannot be put into language, but he can be evoked by means of language, and poetry has that power. Poetic language has that
1: power. It always struck me that uh, poetry's real power is to point, is, is exactly. to sort of point us to to what we can somewhat sense and barely cognize. And and this is why um, 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 grammar and poetry is so fluid and loose. And that that always struck me as the case. And I suppose it makes sense that, well, if if poetry is pointing to to the beyond, to concepts, to feelings, to experiences we can't quite put into conscious language, then perhaps the perimeter of that, perhaps the, the final frontier of that is the divine.
0: Well, again, poetry uh, according to mystics, language can replicate the divine, but can point out. So if, uh, let's say St. John of the Cross, one of the authors that I work with, he has this mystical experience that he, he wrote that he was trying to pour into language. And that although language is not enough of a container, let's say the metaphors sort of overflow the experience. So in a way, he was inviting his reader to go back. Let's say that language sort of takes you back from the evocation of the experience in those metaphors to the experience that the writer actually had.
1: Now that expression that you share about pouring, what comes to mind is uh, unrelated, but perhaps related to the opening lines of Gitanjali, um, ages past and still thou poorest and still there is room to fill. <laughs> yeah, there um, you go. So, uh, so you already alluded to, to to the second question, which is uh, the other part of the subtitle, comparative theopoetics. So we have a sense of theopoetics. Clearly, this is a comparative enterprise. Uh, what are you comparing? Maybe say a bit about the yeah. act of comparing.
0: Yes, I compare a, a poem by the most important mystical poet in Spain, called Saint John of the Cross. His poem, "Spiritual Cantico," or in Spanish, "Cantico Espiritual." And the commentary that he wrote about his own poem, it's a quite long poem with a commentary. And then I, I compared Rasa Lila, which is a very minimum part of a large compendium called Bhagavata Purana about the life of, of the incarnations of the God Vishnu and specifically here about the life of Krishna. The shy, the, they say no for the adolescence of Krishna. And his love stories with, the cowherd women of the village where he grew up, the gods. So we're and, looking. Uh, and then, I'm sorry, scratch. And, yes. sort of, and sure. then uh, on the Hindu side, I use a very foundational commentary written by Shiridara Swami. Uh, and then I use the commentaries by Jiva Goswami from the Gaudilla Vaishnava school, which actually was a contemporary of John of the Cross, although so they had, they, they were totally unaware of each other, of course. And some other commentaries by Gaudilla. Theologians.
1: So there is this great poet mystic figure called John of the Cross in Spain, and and uh, he's written this 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 profound poem, and he's written this this commentary on this poem. And then on the other side of the globe, we have uh, an excerpt from the Bhagavata Purana that um, that deals with the exploits of of Christian of, uh, the avatar of Vishnu, and there's a commentarial tradition in the Gaudiya Vaishnava. Uh, 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 theological tradition pertaining to that, and so so on the one hand, hmm, okay, well I see it's it's sort of instinctive why one might compare uh, uh, these two entities, and yet are there perhaps uh, incongruities or issues with comparing? Like, well, what was that like?
0: I'm quite surprised that you say instinctively because it's not quite instinctive.
1: <laughs> oh, one of my great flaws and great strengths is that I'm an intuitive and I see patterns where it takes it a while for this.
0: <laughs> no, that intuitive is certainly not for the many readers that I've had to explain or many listeners that I had to explain this project to. The main thing that is common between them at first sight, let's say any reader that grabs these two poems says, wow, these are two love stories that are very passionate very intense, and they turn out to be about God. If we didn't know that it was was a divine involved, we could have thought that they just, uh, you know, mundane or worldly love stories. But they both turn out to be quite passionate and quite divine at the same time. And there is this sort of pathos, this sort of, like we say in Sanskrit, this sort of rasa, this sort of taste, that these two poems have, each is, is in its own language, they miss it a lot in translation, that it's about this very intense passion of love and the, the impossibility of bringing that love into total fruition. So it's, it's like an always deciding movement. These are poems about an object of desire that is always moving a step further. <laughs> When you think when you seem to fish, and it's always a stepfather. So that's that's the main gust of the project, and that's how the project started. I, I knew John of the Cross very well because I I, I You don't a, mean
1: historically, do you?
0: Exactly. I'm a Spanish speaker and um, that uh, I grew up in Cuba. And it happened to be, which is actually interesting, it happened to be that in communist Cuba, when I was a student those readings were forbidden because the communist government would forbid to read religious readings so they were not included in any curriculum in the university or in the school or anything but i happened to read it and i became quite fond of it because of the power of his poetry i had never read the commentaries and then one day i came to the united states i was at brown university i was a creative i i came to this as a creative writer not as an academic I was in the creative writing program and I happened to attend a conference where someone was talking about Rasa Lila. And I was like, you can take these poems, you can exchange the verses. And it, they wouldn't be that much altered. They would be almost the same poem. It, it was just that first intent, as, as you say, that, that started that compatible. And that's what's common between them. That's strength of the of the of the power of evocation with language, as we were talking about.
1: So on the one hand, there are folks like you and I who are hopeless romantics or creatives or artists <laughs> or intuitives where we can readily discern the parallels between these, these, these figures who are rendering into artistic language their love of the divine and their this relationship of chasing and pursuing the divine. Okay, so folks like you and I might readily see the parity between the two. Not parody, parity, the parentness, the similarity between the two. And yet you say there are those who would not quite see at first glance why you would compare these two. So what are the critiques, sir? What are what are the what are some of those perspectives? Why might some think that it's not an obvious fit well, to compare them?
0: Uh, and to respond to answer your question, I'm going to again going a bit into the story. After that first encounter, I went to grad school, like a year after I started grad school in Spanish literature and then I sit with my advisor and I'm like maybe I want to study Sanskrit and she's like but you're doing a PhD in Spanish why Why in the world would you be interested in taking Sanskrit classes and I'm like yeah but I read this poem and I and, and I and I'm just so fascinated with it maybe I should take Sanskrit classes and then I I started taking Sanskrit classes and of course a uh, it became more and more clear that I wanted to work on this comparison, but it also became more and more clear that I had to build a sort of method to justify comparing two works that had never been read alongside each other, Uh, never, Uh, and also uh, justifying a comparison without any genealogical relation whatsoever, especially not so much in the field of religion because that's already happening, more, much more in the field of Spanish literature, which is where my PhD was going to be. So uh, I had to work on that. And I, and I luckily I found methods of comparison. I took a actually a great class on methods of comparison with Laurie Patton. And I found methods of comparison that uh, bypass the historical and bypass the genealogical. And I was able to to sort of frame these uh, conversation between the two texts and their theological commentaries but what the book is now is very different from that first attempt that was my doctoral dissertation about 10 years ago
1: wow Uh, you said you were working with lori patton is that correct say again did you say you're working with lori patton
0: she was one of my professors in graduate school yeah she's she's
1: she's brilliant Uh, i've recently been in contact with her i have the Absolutely surreal pleasure of having her contribute to this landmark volume on uh, um, Sanskrit narrative. And,
0: and I'm and I thinking, you podcast actually, you have a few students of her?
1: I'm sure I do. I can't keep yeah. track of who who hails from where, and I've got I've got a sort of map out a, a tree. <laughs> but um, it was very
0: uh, important in my in my doctoral career, and also uh, it has been very important to my career after the the. After I graduated from my PhD, uh, Professor Francis Plunit, whom you interviewed.
1: Yes, yes, yes. 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 Uh, uh, He was on the podcast a couple of times. We could talk about some parallels. There's some real fascinating parallels between the methodologies, between how one is meant to engage the text, Uh, but perhaps let's say a word more about how you are comparing these texts. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about the particular methodology that you came up with, or or the pitfalls of the comparison project?
0: Sure. I remember, actually, one of the questions that Lori Patton uh, put to me when I started uh, taking classes with her. She said, can you argue yourself out of this project? And then I, 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 I actually wrote pages arguing myself out of this project. And then from that, from those so many reasons to not do that comparison came out clear the reasons to, to to pursue it, to to take it on, and the first the first challenge I think it was, as I said, to become that, to to take that intuitive
1: uh, feeling
0: that 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 sense that these texts talk to each other and put it into a framework that was readable, that was a legible for readers right, and for scholars and for conference presentations and so on. It took a lot of practice to to explain the project, to talk about it, to say, these are the two texts I'm doing and this is what I'm doing with them. And then I had to come up with topics of comparison. So these are the two poems, these are the two commentaries, and I'm going to compare them regarding this, this, and this. And those topics of comparison have changed, have evolved greatly from when I, like dissertation project, let's say, to the published book. They're very different now from what they were then.
1: Well, it it seems to me that that's actually, um, (laughs) that's actually probably uh, um, favorable insofar as when we're too rigid about our our theories when we set out, you know, it can be challenging, but if you are really comparing, you're open to the natural process, the dynamic process that will ensue, It will, right, the, 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 your objects of comparison will help you to come up with a better theory.
0: Yeah, Clooney always talks about that in his books, and, in, and he does it in his work, too. Comparison takes time because you have to let the texts talk to each other. You cannot just come out and say, I'm going to compare these two texts regarding how they describe the moon or, or or the metaphor that they use about the water or the site or something as specific, you, that cannot be a preconceived idea. You have to really be, be so familiar with the text that, that they will tell you how they want to be compared. And that takes quite a long time, much longer than most scholars have to produce a book.
1: It does take a long time. Um there are a couple of different factors. What's so interesting is even before the comparison process to really understand a text, in my view, a skilled mythologist or a skilled um, interpreter of narrative, they're actually, their brilliance is showing you what the text is doing. Right? Um, exactly. And, so, and so, so even if it's a single text that you're not comparing, it seems to me that uh, deep familiarity is required.
0: Yes, I'm familiarity okay. with the language. Even though Spanish is my mother tongue, I had to become much more familiar with John of the Cross's Spanish itself, which was a 16th century way of writing. And, and I had to study Sanskrit, which is not a, a small task. And, and traveled to India and Spain, and Spain a significant amount of time there reading with Sanskrit teachers and with traditional Vajnava teachers as well. Because that's how the text sort of gets into your veins, right, into your blood, and then you can really sit and write about it.
1: So, what are some of the um, noteworthy aspects of comparison? What did you find in your project?
0: Well, a project like this one uh, is a bit is a bit selfish in the sense that the the biggest the biggest finding is the reading itself, is the compa- is the, is the joy of the comparison itself. And I said that in the conclusions of the book, I, at the beginning of the conclusions, I write, I, there is no way that I can just write a, a big summary of every chapter here, because I will have to actually rewrite every chapter. It's the detail, the subtlety of each of the readings, of each of the verse, of each of the words that you have put together and 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 relate, and, 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 and made possible the conversation between the texts. But now, if that said, there are also general benefits of a comparison like this one. For example, I don't think I have seen before a, 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 a comparison of a Sanskrit and a Spanish text. These are two languages that are usually not put together. There are uh, Spanish-speaking people that are involved in Sanskrit projects, but not so much in comparisons. And in, specifically in the field of Spanish literature, we tend to compare Spanish texts more with texts that are genealogically related to Spain somehow. Let's say with texts in Arabic, with Sufi texts, with texts that somehow one can find a, a, a trace of those into Spanish culture right, or Iberian culture or pre-Spain culture, but not with, it, with a text that has no relation whatsoever. I remember one uh, uh, one anecdote that you might enjoy. When I was in my second year of the PhD, we went to Spain to work in archives. And and we, we had the chance to go to the university where John of the Cross went to school. So I was there in the library that John of the Cross had visited himself, had, had, had all the whole, you know, whole, some whole of his manuscripts and so on. And, and I, and I asked the librarian, is any reference to India from the time that John of the Cross was a student here? Because I had in my mind, is there any way at all that John of the Cross would ever be remotely familiar with creation? You know, like something. And the librarian said, he was very kind, he said, yes, yes, Gloria, hold on a minute. I have something for you. And I was there waiting and waiting. And then he came with... Listen to this, he came with a Bible translated now because he wasn't talking about India, he was talking about Latin America. So imagine how many levels of colonialism and post-colonialism we can read there, and of course, no India at all in John of the Cross.
1: Yeah, that's and the same
0: thing when I went to Vrindavan for the first time, I tell you about that at the beginning of the intro of the book. When I went to Vrindavan for the first time, eh, It was very, very different from the environment where John of the Cross would have grown or written or anything. There was nothing in the theology, in the spirituality there that would connect the two. And it happens that it's just like that. Comparison just happens in the minds of a reader.
1: Now, call me crazy. I've been (laughs) called worse, I assure you. This is, your enterprise is more instinctive to me than most probably because for me, there are elements of the human experience that are largely products of culture. We are products of culture without question, but we're more than that, it seems to me. There are core human experiences, values, um, um, however you want to think of it, that are cross-culture and that we find in various epochs, in various spaces, uh, uh, um, uh, love the love of significant other, of children, of the divine, this isn't something that needs to be inspired by another culture. This is something about the apparatus of what it means to be human. So it doesn't surprise me that various literary greats stumble upon the same human truths, irrespective of cultural cross-pollination, if that makes sense.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I I agree with you. What happens is that in academia, we take that with A grain of salt, because uh, early in the 20th century, actually, I just finished one article that had something to do with it. Early in the 20th century, there were a lot of comparative projects that could later be and be accused of being somehow colonialist, because we take the knowledge of the other and whoever that other is and whoever that close we feel to it, and we sort of appropriate it and a lot of times we do it the wrong way. When so I, let say me... I say as scholars in general.
1: Yes. So let me ask, Gloria, in your book, are you viewing the Rasalila through the lens of Christian values or through are you measuring it up to John of the Cross?
0: I am viewing both from the lens of both. Exactly. And, I, and I'm glad that you asked me the question. That was the first the first time I met Francis Clooney. That was the question he asked me. He said, "From uh, from the lens of what you are comparing what?" And I and at, the, and at that at that time that was I was in my second third year of grad school. I told him, eh, "I'm comparing Trasalila and Rasalila from the lens of Jonathan Cross. but the book is not that. I'm viewing both from the lens of both."
1: Exactly, and that to me seems sober. And that seems sensible. You're not prioritizing one worldview in order to evaluate the other. No, you even are-
0: sometimes I've had to I have found myself much more passionate and involved writing about the Christian part that I've been found for long. So I've had to sort of temper temper on the part than the Christian. All right.
1: So what would you say is the key takeaway or theme of the book?
0: If the key is takeaway, one. first of all, is the possibility of comparative reading of texts that have nothing to do with each other, by talk, by speak with each other, but dialogue with each other. That is the general key takeaway. And any, any reader, I, I would hope that any reader, either academic or not, that would take this book would say, wow, these texts resonate with each other. They by they, 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 we, we can fill them with the same and understand them with the same tools, or with similar tools. Now, uh, there are theological implications of the book, which come more deep into the chapters about, uh, some of the questions that people have, that theologians or scholars have traditionally asked about John of the Cross, can be sort of addressed if we read John of the Cross together, if you read the Cantico together with Rosalina. Questions about the senses, for example. Questions about how much of the how much of the senses are involved in the mystical perception of God, eh, or how much is that? How much the how much the body is left apart or is involved, and likewise the other way. There are questions in Lila that attains, attain different angles when we read it together with the Canticle. Eh, and eh, another takeaway, which goes back to the beginning of our interview is the methodology. When we are reading these two texts together, which are poetic and archeological, I mean, the poems are both poetic and theological and the commentaries as well. they They are like poetic prose. What tools do we use to read them? How do we approach this text? What is a method that is sensible to both of the traditions, that is respectful of both of the traditions of both of the texts, and we can use for a comparison that is productive? And that is where I suggest the comparative theopoetics that we started talking about. And there are other implications beyond that, which are the need of reading, which can seem <laughs> an overstatement, but I don't think it is. It's the need for a slow focused learning and, and reading of text that sometimes we move away either because we are working, teaching, publishing in systems that don't allow us time for it or because technology has uh, has helped but also diminished our capacity of, of just dealing with text, the need for, for engaging with other languages, with other fields of studies and so on.
1: This, this type of reading that you're calling for, uh, the slower reading, um, does it apply to all sorts of texts or do you, do you have certain texts in mind more than others?
0: In an ideal world, yeah, it would apply to all sorts of texts. How can we really read slow? I mean, how can we really read fast? I, I've never been able to do that. Uh, we, and I think it's a, it's a large call for education too. Uh, I've seen literature professors teaching students to scan through text. How do you read scan- scanning through text? Uh, but I think it if, if not with every text that comes into your hands, you should definitely apply a very close and slow and detailed reading and respectful reading to those texts that you want to write about as a scholar.
1: Does that, do you mean primary texts as well as secondary sources, or do you have a certain kind of text in mind?
0: Primary texts, yes, primary texts. And I'm not talking about particularly religious or theological texts, literature in general. What
1: surprised you about this comparison, if anything?
0: It surprised me. Uh, at the end, how well it worked and how much more, how much more I could have written about it. It asked for more. It's a comparison that asks for more. I, 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 I decided to give a book a specific structure. I made my chapters about a specific topics dealing with this, this experience of God, but I could have gone another, I could have gone a different way. Uh, and I, after I finished writing the book, it was like a lot, a lot was left in time and still.
1: And will that be poured out into a subsequent work?
0: I, I don't think into another book, but maybe into articles or, yeah. So
1: and and the uh, that which was left <laughs> within you, is it pertaining to particular directions of, of research or particular topics yes, or because aspects?
0: The book, because against the book, the the book. The book prioritizes the the theology and the poetry. I would have, I would like to. I, I I mean, if I had the time and the and the resources to to that to dip into one of each of them separate into the literature and the theology by itself, it would be it would be quite a pleasure to separate them and then see how they work together again, because when you are dealing with the yes, you cannot put you cannot separate the poetry from the theology, but from the literary perspective, each, each of these texts is so rich and converse with each other. And from the pure theolo- theological perspective, they do as well. So there are theological questions that I would like to, to develop further. For example, I, I gave a presentation at the AAR last year about the, the, the concept of of the body, as I was talking to you earlier, of how much the body is involved in the in the mystical experience. And that's something that I could not develop in the book as much. And from the literary perspective, for example, they use a, it is, they use a metrical system in the poetry that is very similar, it's 11. In Raza Lila, we find different metric systems, but one of them is very similar to the metric system that John of the Cruz uses in his poetry. So it was a poetry that was meant to be Heard that was mainly orally and use the same 11 syllables metric system, which is very rare in a Spanish literature.
1: It's fascinating, actually.
0: Yeah.
1: It really is. No wonder you were looking for some sort of causal influence, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <absolutely. laughs> I understand. Um, no, this really is a fascinating project. There's so many aspects that I think are useful. Um, in your conclusion, um, you're making a particular call or, or or case. What what are you calling people to to in this book?
0: Are you talking about a specific? I, I I address different kind of audiences in the conclusions. Are you referring about okay?
1: So so let's let's reverse the order of these questions in my mind. Let's first say who are these audiences? Or who's the book for primarily? Who yeah. might benefit?
0: Yes. In my conclusions, I really had to sit and and think slowly about who whose hands this book would be, and and I thought that I had several kind of groups of readers that don't necessarily talk to each other. First, there would be the readers in my home discipline, discipline of Spanish literature. Then there would be the readers of comparative literature in general. There would be the readers in religion, the readers in religion and comparative. Literature. Sorry, and there would be the readers in theology and comparative theology. And then there would be the general readers who just like to read and like poetry and like mystical poetry. Uh, I think my main call in the conclusions is for, is for not forgetting that we scholars are human beings and for not forgetting how much uh, our passions uh, what we like, what we dislike, what we uh, against or in favor affects the way we read uh, and write and teach when we are teachers too. And that that idea translates into the different kinds of readers. Uh, to the general comparative readers, I ask to again go back to the slowness of reading. To I have a couple of paragraphs directly specifically to professors like me that teach in large universities where sometimes we just don't have the time or we feel we don't have the time. How can we think of real reading, real learning? How can we, how are we instilling in a students a love for knowledge if, if we are all the time in a rush? Being in a rush doesn't really bring up nothing that lasts. And and then to to theologians, I talk about, taking poetry more seriously, taking creativity more seriously. And to uh, literature scholarship specifically, I also talk about taking theology more seriously and getting over uh, getting over a sort of trend in literature where we just ignore the religious because it's not the letter. It's not the sense we cannot, we we don't have literary methods to to deal with it or just because it's part of the subjectivity of the author. And that, I think, is a mistake as
1: well. Yeah, it's fascinating. There, I mean, <laughs> so many things come to mind. Uh, there's some parallels with my own work. I look at um, Sanskrit narrative. So mm-hmm. my, my first book was on the Devi Mahatmya. Uh, mm-hmm. And I use literary methods
0: mm-hmm.
1: right, in order to understand the structure of the text. And those literary methods veer towards understanding characterization and structure themes they illumine religious ideologies, philosophies, perspectives. So, so there's a lot there. It's it's really rich. Um, the, but at the same that, time,
0: sometimes they tend to ignore the the religious part of the text. Whether the religious methods tend to ignore the theology, the, the literary parts of the. Well, text.
1: I, I think it's I mean, I think there is a there's a trend certainly, but it, it is somewhat innovative, <laughs> relatively innovative, to look at Sanskrit narrative as literature. Uh, for example, this this study of mine was the very first time that was done, it hadn't been done because it's sort of not your historically your go to methodology for mm. for such works. So, so I think there is a great deal of cross pollination that can occur across disciplines um, because of bridging books such as this one. Uh, one of the things that came to mind as you were speaking about reading and one's nature, one's relationship to reading, is that. Uh, what's happened is uh, we have a certain mode of the acquisition of information that is um, expedited by these times of ours, and that's important. Just gaining information, mm-hmm. right, from what we're reading, uh, data, right? Yeah,
0: mining this, c- the text. It,
1: right, and but certain texts are not about information; they're about transformation. They're yeah. about experience. They're not about getting to the point or getting to the end. They want you to take the scenic route. There's a journey to be had within the text, above and beyond you know, the information, right? The experience of the ride along the countryside is very different from the Google Maps image of it, right? And so there's an experience to be had um, by taking your time going through texts, to be sure. Um,
0: but also if- specifically religious texts, these texts carry with them a tradition, a whole tradition. When I go to India and I sit with the Vaishnava teacher, I'm participating in a tradition that I don't belong that I don't belong to by birth, right? <laughs> uh, and 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 that transforms me as an author and as a writer as well.
1: How would you say looking at these texts have impacted your own creativity or creative writing? I imagine you're still writing creatively or not necessarily. And if so. Has that been impacted by this scholarship?
0: Uh, Well, I can tell you that uh, the the process of of writing this book was creative itself, was was a creative writing process. It was an academic project, of course, but the creativity impulse is not devoid. It's not absent there. It's there very much. they sometimes they overwhelm me because I can't imagine that I can try anything more beautiful than this authors read and that these authors sound together. Uh, and, and sometimes it just frees me. It's very freeing because uh, the, these are the, the mystics, and I'm and, and, and thinking of Rasalil as a mystical text too. They are uh, texts about, about loving God very freely. In a way that is uh, that is hard for most people to imagine and about loving in general with freedom and creativity
1: Mm. was there anything else about the project that you wanted us to mention or touch on
0: well i think uh, i i just got this book a few weeks ago in my hand i don't know if you've seen the actual Book and this might not be so helpful for the recording because the listeners cannot read it. But I think it came out quite beautiful, <laughs> and and I'm 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 very pleased with the with the way in which even in, in the in the cover of the book, this cover of the book, uh, uh, the picture is about the two texts: the text in Spanish over here and the text in Sanskrit, the Cantico and Rasalila. and these are actually the texts that I worked with for years. He said precisely the text. I wanted something else in the cover. I wanted some color, some something. But the editors in OUP in Oxford were not so convinced about it. So I, I said, I'm not going to use a regular cover. I have to make up something else. And I just talked to a friend who is the post photographer, and he came out with this idea. Um, and I'm quite pleased how this involves, how the cover itself from the very beginning of the book shows my involvement with the text and and i hope that is there in the book as well that i'm not absent as a as the maker of the comparison that i'm not absent at the same time i hope that is not self absorbent that is not that is i i hope a reader can empathize with that easily and that being my personal experience is not the main point of it
1: yes it's a tricky balance it really is um um uh, the, how to say the voice of the text needs to be Uh, prioritized right so so we use our voice so I've been told in my writing I have a particular voice right I've been told in in different contexts Uh, despite the voice with which we write the insight uh, the brilliance the 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 the, the captivating bits uh, are what we're saying about the texts not our actual texts right
0: Letting the voice of the text uh, speak through us
1: Exactly. So you can have a voice and a presence, obviously, which makes for an engaging read when you have the sense that the reader is speaking to you, and is alive, and is not disconnected from their emotions or their experience, uh, that, uh, that you're actually in front of them in a classroom setting, perhaps, that's actually quite inviting. So you are drawn into their field, their presence, their psyche, their aura, their what have you. But they're not going on about themselves <laughs> they're going on about they're showing you now about the greatness of the mahabharata or this comparison or or the grandeur of the goddess or etc 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 so i think it is it can be a challenging balance but to me you've you've done a good job in doing that so it, it is fascinating and Actually, when,
0: I, when i heard francis cleary's review of the book on the back cover it's the first thing he says is the book is intensely personal and i remember stopping for a minute and thinking is that good or bad <laughs> Being intensely personal in a book, in an academic book. I think it's good if you don't lose the balance, like you say.
1: Well, intensely personal is not tantamount to being intensely biased, right? Yeah. There's a difference. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. a difference. So, so obviously, uh, Frank Clooney is writing something favorable to, go to the back of the book. <laughs> <laughs> I would one would imagine. One would imagine so, particularly given the synergy between your methodological approach and his own. Um, fantastic. Was there anything else that you wanted to say or um, um, anything else ask before we close?
0: No, actually, it was interesting talking to you because uh, the the topic of the voice of the author my my next project. Uh, I want it to be about mysticism and exile because you find that in a, lot of, in a lot of mystical literature, they refer to the experience of encounter with God as an experience of exile, exile from the body, of exile from yourself, from your sense of identity and sense of self and so on. So that, I, that is a lot of exile imagery in mystical writing. And the other way around, there is some mystical imagery in experiences of geographical exile, and I wonder what would the voice be for that one. It would be totally different, maybe, but it would still be my same loving God, passionate voice that from in God. So we'll see.
1: You'll find out. You'll find out once you write it.
0: Yeah. All right. Great.
1: So thank you for appearing on the podcast today.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: For those of you listening, uh, we. Have been speaking about a brand new OUP publication, 2021, hot off the presses, called Savoring God, a Comparative Theopoetics. Now that we know what theopoetics are, um, uh, we've been speaking with the book's author, uh, Gloria um, uh, Mate Hernandez, who's Associate Professor of Spanish at Westchester University. Um, and please uh, be well, stay safe, stay sane, keep well keep listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating uh, poetic parallels across traditions. Take care.